Welcome to a new season of the Context Matters podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have different life experiences from me. And then we talk about God and Bible theology and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table with us. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. Last week, I started a conversation with two contributing authors of the book, Reading the Bible Around the World. Dr. Alice Yafede and Dr. K. Huguera-Smith are full professors in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department of Azusa Pacific University. We discussed how their very different backgrounds influenced their approach to the Bible. We ended with a recognition that we all need to do what we can to recognize our own presuppositions, something that is really hard to do in isolation, which is why I always say conversation partners are so valuable. But even in scholarship, there were ages past where we actively taught that it was possible to efface yourself or remove your own personal perspective from your interpretation, that you could be completely objective in coming to a conclusion about what the Bible means. I find often, whether it's in church or an academic environment, people want to study and uncover the truth like the singular capital T truth, and they want to feel comfortable about being right in their conclusion. But that very quickly can become challenging to being hospitable to different voices because different critiques are brought to the table and it dismantles or, well, it shakes our desire to be right. So I threw out a challenging question into the middle of the podcast table surrounded by these two brilliant scholars. How do we hold the tension of wanting to treat the Bible with respect and also treating other people with respect? Do we throw out the need to be right? And this is going to launch us into a masterclass of hermeneutics. So hold on tight. And Dr. K. Huguera-Smith is the first to respond. Well, first of all, um, that's such a deep question. I know. Because <laughs> people who, who tend to claim I'm right are often the people that think they have no hermeneutic. That is, they have the hermeneutic the word hermeneutics i'm sure your audience knows is the study of 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 interpretation and so often people who make those kinds of claims don't even acknowledge the fact that they do have a hermeneutical lens that they're looking through and this is so patently observably false and it's so ironic because those same people if they're studying augustine and his interpretation of the Bible or Origen or Martin Luther or John Calvin are going to do what? They're going to look at their social location. They're going to look at the historical events and even the personal family events that that ancient writer came into and make connections between that social location and the theological and hermeneutical claims of that traditional writer. So they recognize its truth, and it, it, I don't want to use that truth, but they recognize the the reality of that in the past, and yet they deny it in themselves. So it's a wonderful irony 
one uh, theologian who in other areas has been disgraced, but he, he made one claim that I really appreciate. He said, we don't possess the truth, but the truth possesses us. And I think there's hubris, there's arrogance in claiming that I possess the truth. And I think that's the problem, that that particular demographic who makes those kinds of claims assumes a very hierarchical, a very authoritarian model of interpretation. And there are other models that equally revere scripture. And here again is why I, I've gained so much from uh, what I've learned from the rabbis, because the rabbis throughout almost all of their history never had uh, political autonomy. And because of that, we don't have a Jewish pope. We don't have a singular figure who makes pronouncements for all Judaica. And so because of that, there is more of a, of a view of interpretation as a collective process. It's more of a big tent process. And in the rabbinic tradition, you can have two sages who rule antithetically opposed to one another. And there's the famous story in the, in the Talmud where God says, these and those are the words of the living God. The tension of those perspectives pulled in opposite direction is what keeps the tent up. And I think that is, to be honest, a, a much more honest and a, a much consistent, logically consistent and moral model for interpretation than the, the hubris of the I know the truth model, which is something that many of us have been exposed to. And this is from people on the left and on the right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to add to that, um, because I just, I discussed this with my students class yesterday. Actually, that was the topic where, where really the game is like, what I really explained was that, look, I think we miss something, especially in the meaning making process. We think that the text itself has one meaning. I said the text has meaning potential and that potentiality is realized contextually. And that potentiality looks very, um, when it's realized contextually, it looks very different. And for that community that realizes it potentiality in a specific way that is right for them as a community, that is a meaning that makes sense for them and should be respected. Even if that meaning is different from my own meaning, the problem comes when we universalize, when we generalize that meaning that is meaning for every community, right? So that's, to me, is very important that, and because some of my students are worried, well, for the, the addressees of the text, we're dealing with the household codes. Do they see the meaning as we do? I said, no, they didn't. I said, for Paul, Paul was give, giving them, again, if we talk about the uh, pastoral Paul or the uh, we. However, I'm not going to the controversial issue, the, the disputed, non-disputed letters, but they address as written from Paul. So I'm, that's the perspective from which I'm speaking. I said for that community, Paul did give them what we call a unique understanding of what it takes mean um, for them. And for them, that was what my student would call some sort of a prescriptive meaning of what he's saying. Yes, but for us, it isn't. Should we now fault how they understood the text then? No, I say it's also a community reading the word of God and making sense of the word of God within a culture that is 
very different from ours. And they are trying to, as a new emerging community, trying to make sense of their identity in Christ that clashes so much with social identities and cultural identities. And they're trying to make meaning. And that meaning was good for them. Then, even if we find that, like, it's not what we would have, how we would have read, but we have to be in solidarity with the church and said in different times and in different spaces, People arrive at different contextual meaning, which for them was good, maybe even life-giving, but for us it's not, because now we are addressing different contexts, different norms. We are not dealing with the Greco-Roman household norms that requires very specific ways on how the household is being structured. We That is not our own expectation in terms of household, but let's be hospitable with these very contextual meanings wish for that church was maybe life-giving and help them live out their Christian faith. Then, even though it might not be how we do it now, because that allows for solidarity and hospitality within the church as the body of Christ, that one church might come up more, might have a, a realized potentiality of a text that would be so drastically different from mine that I just ate. But I still have to be hospitable to say that that community, that is what as a community came down to as meaning that is helpful for that community. Even if I disagree, you see. So the problem is when we generalize our, our, our only conclusions, in that meaning-making process to be the reading of the text. That is the intention of the text. That is the meaning of the text. That's where the problem is. But if different readers are saying, this is the meaning for this community, as we wrestle to understand the potentiality of meanings embedded in this text, and we come down to this, they will say, that's good. If that's good for your community, amen. You know, so that's how I help the student begin to understand so that we, as a church, we just need to be in solidarity in our differences because you know what? And Crystal, yeah, our differences are not there for us or did not, were not made inconsequential. But what shapes us is that we are all in Christ and, you know, and how we exist in Christ looks different, but is as long as we are being transformed into the image of Christ and doing the work for the kingdom, that's good. I want to add to that even more because it's a very complex question, if I may. Yeah. When it comes to these questions of interpretation, there's multiple facets. On the one hand, as Alice has shared, we need to become much more comfortable with the idea of multiplicity of meanings. And and here again, I want to quote the rabbis. You know, they they like to say about the Bible, they say the Bible is is like a, a crystal. Turn it and turn it. Meaning that every time you turn the crystal, you see a new facet. And I think that's really powerful. On the other hand, one might say, well, then can you make the Bible say anything that you want it to say? And that's not the case. And I think there's two other approaches or recognitions that we I want to lay out. One is that even in this multiplicity of, of meaning, there's a range of meaning yeah. outside which no community of interpreters is going to uh, fall. 
That is that although two different communities or three or four may interpret it differently, there are certain meanings that just cannot be derived from a text, except by maybe one person who could go out and say, I think the text means this and have their soapbox and nobody will listen to them. So it's irrelevant. So, for instance, uh, in the example of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus or the young man who comes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And, he, and ultimately, he tells him, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. People who are affluent almost always interpret this metaphorically. They do not interpret it as a command, a direct command to all of us to go out and sell everything that we have to, and give it to the poor. However, uh, some of these base communities in, in South America and in, in really impoverished peasant communities, people interpret it very literally as this should be the command. If you are wealthy, you need to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Both of those interpretations in those interpreting communities are legitimate and, and supportable. However, what is not supportable by any interpretive community is to say that here Jesus is teaching that if you are wealthy, just party on, double down, have a good time, forget everybody else. You cannot derive that meaning from the text, or you can, but you're just going to be an individual person that no one will listen to. So, so far we have two important aspects of interpretation. One is the importance of multiplicity of meaning. The second argues that while there is multiplicity of meaning, there still is a range outside of which no interpretive community would find compelling. And the third point is that although we argue for multiplicity of meanings, we don't just do it without any reference to the text. Or we don't just claim, well, because I'm a woman, I'm going to make the Bible say whatever I want it to say. My unique standing as a woman allows me to see things that other people haven't seen. So, for instance, not just me as a woman, but many f female scholars have challenged the interpretation of uh, the, uh, Paul's description of Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse 2, where he calls her a prostatis. Now, if you look up the word prostatis in a Greek lexicon outside of the Bible that's looking how that word is used everywhere else in the ancient Greek world, it means a ruling elder, pro before, statis, one who stands before. Uh, the King James translated it as helper. So here is a case, and even today the NRSV translated as benefactor, which I think is a Weasley translation also. And I've read the arguments for why not saying ruling elder, and I don't think they pan out at all. It should be translated as ruling elder. But here is a case where I'm not just saying because I'm a woman, I want it to mean that. I back it up with evidence. I look at the ancient Greek lexicons, look at how that word is used, see if that uh, word can apply in this particular case. So being uh, from diverse spaces also allows us, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, to see things that others haven't been able to see or others didn't want to see. And, of course, we can give a myriad of examples of that, especially when it comes to gender. So it's not that we are arguing anything goes, there is no truth, or we're all looking for truth, but who cares, whatever your social location matters. There are, I think, very important guidelines that we can employ. But what we cannot do is have the kind of hubris to claim that I possess the truth, that my interpretation is the interpretation, and therefore. 
I proclaim it because I have the authority to do so. That is the least supportable and least moral interpretive approach of all the various approaches I've discussed. Such wisdom in what both of you said. It makes me think immediately of how important it is to read and study the biblical text as a community. That is something my rabbi friends would say. You're not supposed to study it on your own. You know, when they would hand out rabbinic texts and everyone's like, I can't understand it. They're like, you're not supposed to. (laughs) This is why you have to study with a rabbi. This is why you have to study in community. And when I listen to both of you do your miniature masterclass that you just did in interpretation, I think of humility with the text and I think reading community, we need to have other eyes and other ears. And it makes me wonder, is this exactly why in the book collectively as authors, you all decided to use the story of the good neighbor or the good Samaritan as your example text? Was it to try to get at this kind of experience for the reader? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to show that how rich, think again of the notion of the crystal, that you could turn it and turn it, how rich this story is. That, uh, that, and of course, we all went and wrote our chapters separately. We didn't, we didn't interact in the writing of the chapters, but it was beautiful to come together and see how each one of us saw something fresh and different in that story. And what I see there, the, the beauty of it is, again, as I really emphasize as text having potentiality that is tapped by different people reading, using different interpretive methods. And you will see that, that, that's the, 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 the reality that when you use a particular approach to, to, as an entry point to that text, the conclusion you arrived at emphasizing the aspects of the text and de-emphasize other aspects of the text that another um, interpreter picks up those de-emphasize aspects of the text and emphasize it and de-emphasize your own emphasized as- aspect of the text. That is the beauty because you are using this, a particular interpretive approach and so the questions you're asking of the text is very different from another reader and you're coming to different conclusions which really solidified that, that, that Reality that the text has potentiality, meaning potential that is differently realized or actualized and depending the kinds of questions you bring to the text. And that's the beauty we want to show the students that when you read this text, the loving neighbor text and ask specific questions of the text or use a particular approach to the text, your conclusions about the loving neighbor looks very different from that of your peers. And so that's the, the rationale for reading the same text to, to, so that they can see concretely how social location and interpretive method use intersects in shaping meaning of the text. Hmm. I am comforted to know that there are students in biblical study classes who get to have your voices, <laughs> just bring them into awareness of themselves and the privilege of sitting around tables with diverse communities who are bringing different views. It gives me great hope for the future of where the church is going. And just as we conclude, I'd be curious if you're seeing in the way that the younger generations are growing up with 
so much access to media around the world and different people and they value the experiences that other people have. Are they having an easier time with this shift in perspective than older generations might be? Are you seeing them being willing to to read this like socially aware meaning making of the biblical text? I think from, I will speak particularly for my, my, my classes. Every single class I teach, the first day of class is they do an exercise in identifying their social locations with questionnaires in helping them to think through and those aspects that shape their own social identity. And that really does help them. And then we should, they do a, um, a discussion post for an online class. They do a discussion post where they are really engaging. I give them an article on social location to read. They do a discussion post where they are really engaging and talking about their own various social locations and um, identity constructions. And that really helps from the beginning to set that class up for them to be start appreciating each other's social location. For some students, it's hard. It's hard because they are not used to. They come from a ecclesial background. APU is a, is a Christian university. So they come from an ecclesial background that I would say that um, they are being shaped by that, that ecclesial community to look at text in very unique ways and doing exactly what we were just discussing into a singular way of reading text. So when you, they become really yeah. uncomfortable to move away. It's not like, let's say, and Paul Rico said first naivete, where you imbibed everything your pastor said, everything your parents said, you know, and you just imbibe. And that's how you've been shaped. And now you are forced to just be in a space of it, take some distance from that and start rethinking all these meanings that you are bringing with to bringing with you to this class and thinking through so that it becomes, I, I told them and I am very particular in saying this, I said, you have to address the questions of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Not what who do your pastors say that um, Jesus is? Who do your parents say Jesus is? All the other people say that Jesus is this. Now, the question Jesus addresses to you is, you, what do you say that I am? So in that space, it allows them to start doing that reflective thinking of answering that question, which is not, yes, it's true, it's, it's interweaved in what they have learned, but it's now becoming just. So that at the end of the day, it is their answer. This, Jesus, you are this, you know. So that process is, 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 is difficult, but it's one I, I, I make them understand they are compelled by the Lord to answer because that question is addressed to us at every time of our lives. What do you say that I am? So that's how I really help my students do that exercise beginning of this, first week of the class so that it starts introducing them because all through the semester, I make them read very diverse readings. I don't just focus on textbook that presents one perspective. I make them do, I assign lots of different articles with different voices. And that's how this, I said, 
that they start getting used to reading as they go text from with different perspectives, different voices. You know, some students are still resistant, but I find overall that many students are open up and say, well, I did not know this. I did not. It's appreciating different voices, you know. Alice and I both teach primarily undergrads. Alice teaches some graduate uh, students, but I teach only undergrad. And um, of course, because we are in a uh, confessedly Christian university, the Bible classes, many of our Bible classes are required general ed requirements. And um, I have to say that there's always a small minority of students who are really excited about this, but I think we live in a time when young people are not very interested in the Bible. One of my colleagues, uh, I don't know if he coined this phrase, but I got it from him. He, he uses the term the Bible as icon. The Bible seems to be, for many of my students, our students, an icon that they revere and bow down to, but they never open it up and read it. And in some cases, when we begin to ask these kinds of questions where uh, we also, of course, look into the ancient context and, and the ancient social location, and we're also looking at our contemporary social location, this can make students uncomfortable because it it doesn't let them, especially looking at the ancient context, doesn't let them maintain their notion of boyfriend Jesus, you know, <laughs> kind of hangs up there in the sky, sing songs to him, you know. And I get students who really, not in so many words, but say, you know what, I'm sticking with boyfriend Jesus. I don't really have any interest in understanding who the, you know, who Jesus might have been in his context. I really just want boyfriend Jesus. So in some ways, my experience is, is kind of frustrating, but I get though that uh, there's always a remnant, right? And there's always that remnant of students who are transformed, truly transformed by recognizing this. And of course, once they're able to uh, practice interpreting the Bible through their own social location and their, and taking into account their social identity and doing as Alice has described on their social identity and what are that, uh, that I get come out of their family. They go and they interview grandma and ask questions about their family story. They feel so empowered when they can bring who they are to the table. So that that little small group that really cares, that's that's what in me going. I will add something quickly that I think uh, one thing that really helped, at least what I've noticed, is that um, when these students, again, for a place where it's Christian university like ours, when the students see that you make them do all this exercise in recognizing and appreciating multiplicity of voices, both in the Bible and in, in interpretive traditions. And when they see that you're passionate about these issues of diversity and inclusion in terms of how we read the text, when they see you model faith, that you, you yourself, you are your personal faith, you are, you have vibrant faith, you are passionate for God, you're passionate for the kingdom, then they begin to realize, oh, wait, she can still love God and love Jesus and still be so passionate about all these diversities things, you know? So they know that what we what we are trying to make them appreciate in terms of diverse ways of reading, diverse ways of um, the world becoming 
flesh in the, in reality and people live realities really does promote transformational living, you know, does really promote in community building and in kingdom building, you know. So when they see that that is the professor, that's God, then they're like, okay, I can listen. Because that fear is, oh, well, she wants to learn my faith. She wants to move me away from faith. She's questioning the authority of the Bible. When this is, no, it's just appreciating that authority of the Bible that I was for different contextualized way of being and living, but it still creates community and crystal. When they say that, I think many of them, I, as I, I'm not as skeptical as kid or that, um, because I try to look at what kind of transformation is happening. I try to, I, I look more on that than the resistance. Maybe I should look more on and look at more the reasons and I try not to, I try to say at the end of the day, if two students, three students come to appreciate how social location intersects with how we read text to bring about real transformation, I just feel like I've done my job, you know, but resistance, of course, they are there. But I think more importantly for Christian Scholars teaching in Christian University, the students have to see you are a model believer. Then they'll take you seriously. If they, they say you're only just questioning left and right, using critical lenses, and they don't see some sort of how that word is in flesh in your own life, then whatever you say, they don't, they don't take you seriously. It is just so good. I listened to this a couple times in the editing process, and I hope you go back and listen as well. Do you have a group of people you read the Bible with? Do you turn the text like a gem and try to catch new glimpses of the richness of the meaning? I'd love to hear how you're doing that. You can connect with me through my website, narrativeofplace.com. And from now until May 31st of 2023, if you are listening to this episode right as it drops and you'd like to purchase the book, Reading the Bible Around the World, then go to the IVP Press website and enter the code PLACE23, that is P-L-A-C-E-2-3, and you'll get 30% off either the print or the ebook version and free shipping if you're in North America. Next week, we are going to move on and talk about reading the Bible with children or reading children's Bibles. This is more complex than you might initially think. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is really good to be with you, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.